Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipporah, the club's vice president of media and editorial. Now we hope you are staying safe and are well wherever you are. We are eager to return to in-person programming, so keep an eye out for our reopening news. In the meantime, we look forward to seeing you in person when it is safe at the club's headquarters. But until that happens, we are doing all of our programming online. This is the latest on about 450 online programs the club has produced since the beginning of the pandemic. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as audio and video from our previous programs at commonwealthclub.org. Now, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, the Commonwealth Club is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues of the day. Any views expressed by our hosts, our speakers, or online commenters are theirs, their views alone, excuse me, and not those of the Commonwealth Club. We, if you are watching us live on YouTube, please use the chat box to submit questions for our special guests today. And now let me introduce Michelle Miao. She's the host of the Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club of California for providing a platform for us to bring all these incredible thought leaders together. Since the murder of George Floyd by former police officer Derek Chauvin, many community members are now acknowledging or at least more aware of police murders and incidents of brutality. Unfortunately, these incidents are nothing new to the black community. Our speakers today are activists and leaders who are part of the Anti-Police Terror Project, an organization that launched a campaign to defund the Oakland Police Department five years ago, which has eventually led us to where we're at today, the Reimagining Public Safety Task Force. Let's welcome Kat Brooks and James Birch to the program. Kat, James, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to be with us. Thanks for having us, Michelle. It's great to be here, Michelle. Yeah, it's really great to see you both, and you both have been uh, uh, on the show before. Um, but today, we're, we're talking about some really important issues, as well as a little bit of good news. You've made big progress since the last time we spoke here on the program. Let's begin with the creation of the task force, kind of what led to it, um, which organizations, who is a part of it, and its relation to the Oakland City Council. James and I actually have two narratives about how the task force was created, um, which I, I haven't really engaged in, in a conversation about correcting because I think they're both true. Um, and, and I think they're both true based on where, you know, each of us sit in the work. Um, and from, from my perspective, um, the task force was a, a demand, right, that, that we made um, that was responded to by um by by city council um because it had to be right so so during the 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 uprisings that were happening across the country um libby schaff who's the mayor of oakland tried for her second time during her mayoral tenure to impose a curfew on the city of oakland and for the second time we came together and said no so aptp called an f your curfew march right the people responded by the tens of thousands with the demand to defund Right. It was at that moment that we were clear that the demand um, had saturated Oakland and, and that the people organically realized that, that this was the opening and the time was now. And so um, and we, we, we're clear that the state is going to do everything possible to try to prove that defund doesn't work and that we should keep um, throwing um, wasting dollars in violent policing and a violent carceral state. And so we wanted time. Right to figure out how we get from here to there, and to bolster the community groups that are on the ground doing this grassroots work anyway. So, 
from where I sit, that's how the task force came about. From where James sits, he's got a little bit of a different narrative. And like I said, I, I think both of them are true. James? Uh, I definitely appreciate that, Kat. And I think we're in alignment on, on how we came to the task force. I think it's important for uh, me as the policy director and the leader of Defund OPD to just place this moment in time because for a lot of people across the country, defund is something that's very new. Uh, but for us, defund is something that we've been working on for, like you've said, uh, for over five years now. Uh, and it comes from the reality that our system of policing is not only uh, uh, violent and inherently dangerous for, for, for black people and for all people, but also that that same system is not economically viable, right? And if you look at the numbers, which police attempt to prevent you know, the communities from doing, uh, you realize that we're spending uh, exorbitant amounts of money and getting pre you know, very little, if anything, back for many of those investments. And so defund OPD came from that principle and the principle that we need to start taking this money back from the institution of policing, these millions of dollars that are being wasted and return them to community. Uh, and I think, as Kat said, uh, um, uh, as the policy director, I just see the dollars being wasted and want things moved immediately. You know, I want all of those dollars uh, uh, put to good use. Uh, and it's Kat's vision uh, that, uh, that, that, that identified that we need a pathway to do that, right? You know, you can't take all of this money overnight and magic it into the places it needs to be. There needs to be a pathway to reinvestment. Uh, and so that's where the Reimagining Public Safety Task Force came from. And that's what its purpose was, is to, to reimagine how to invest 50% of the money going to the Oakland Police Department. And I think you just said 50%. Um, so is that, is that right? Let's, let's have a discussion about this and how money is spent, uh, you know, as far as Oakland goes. How is Oakland still considered, you know, one of the most violent cities nationwide, yet spend half of its budget on, uh, on their police department? Uh, that's the that is the multi million dollar question, Michelle. Uh, Literally multi million dollar question. Um, and, and so we fortunately um, uh, we have a lot of numbers uh, that show that what people think police, particularly OPD, does is not what they spend their time doing. So, for example, uh, we got uh, we commissioned a report from crime data analysts on OPD's calls for service. Right when someone calls 911 or calls the cops, we wanted to figure out what those calls were for, right? And what we learned is that 4% of those calls are for what we call violent crime, right? 7% uh, of those calls are for what we call property crime, right? Which means 89% of those calls are for, you know, the large something else, right? And what defund OPD's purpose is, is to examine that 89% uh, and identify the areas that we've all agreed on as a society that we don't need police doing, we just aren't aware that they are doing. So for instance, uh, uh, animal control in the city of Oakland is, is 1% of all calls for service, or 13% uh, are for traffic-related issues, right? Or another 10% for medical-related issues, right? A lot of things that people don't think cops should be, you know, should be doing. If, if I request an ambulance, I don't need a cop. Right, so why over 20,000 times a year do cops go out on service calls for ambulance requested? Right, and how much money are we losing uh, just on those issues alone before we get to the hard issues of you know, stops that, 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 that might include violence? Again, the four or 11% of all calls. 
Kat, do you have anything to, to add to that? No, I, I mean, well, yes, of course. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I think the, the only other thing that I, that I would say is, is particularly right now, right, we're not just in Oakland, but across the country, we are seeing um, massive spikes um, in, in violent crime. I think it's really important for people to understand a couple of things. One, that's because the coronavirus exacerbated not pre-existing medical conditions, but pre-existing social conditions of poverty. Right. Um, and that when people cannot make a living in the above ground economy, they're going to make a living in the underground economy, because just like me and you, they too need to eat, have, be clothed, um, have housing, uh, have medical bills. Right. Um, and and, and that the other thing is that um, part of how you can tell how powerful um, defund when it's actually implemented is going to be is because the state is already blaming defund for things and the policy hasn't been implemented yet. Right. So across the board, people are saying, well, look, people are calling for defund and there's this massive spike of crime. Let's be really clear. The spike in crime is happening while, let's just say in Oakland, Oakland PD still gets almost 50 percent right, of our general fund. The spike in crime is happening as we are still doing things the way that we have always been doing. So actually what this spike in crime should be generating is a conversation based in metrics and data about why militarized police in a, a violent carceral state do not keep us any safer. The other thing is that police are violence responders. They are not violence interrupters. They are not about the business of stopping crime, which when we're talking to people that are concerned about defund, that's what they want police to do, right? They, they want the police because they want to interrupt crime. I need you to understand police do not do that. You know who can do that? The people. The people that actually live in the neighborhood, the shot callers, the OGs, the folks that people trust, and that's who is doing it when it's happening. And those are the types of things that we need to be resourcing so they can do it on bigger and better levels. We have a graphic here that we borrowed from APTP, and it's Refund the Community. So we'll show our audience this graphic. Uh, but basically, it gives us a visual of how much is spent on police and how much is overspent in comparison to other departments of the budget that is under budget. And some of those departments include housing and community development, you know, at, uh, and also even a department of violence prevention, which I would imagine that as crime increases, we would increase our spend in such departments. Let's spend some time, you know, talking about this so that the everyday person understands, you know, what these numbers mean. Any one of you can can jump in to feel free. James, how about you? Uh, absolutely. I think what's important for people to understand uh, is that the system, uh, the system in Oakland, the way we spend money related to our budget doesn't even reflect uh, the numbers that that are on paper. And so we say that Oakland, for instance, spends forty four percent of our general fund on policing, right? And those are the numbers that are budgeted, right? But the administration knows that every year they're going to spend an additional 20 or so million dollars uh, on policing that isn't budgeted, unauthorized expenditures for overtime, right? And to make up that money, that money has to come from somewhere, right? And that money will come from unfilled positions, first from within the police department uh, and then through other departments as well, right? So there's just, you know, Every, I think everyone thinks that when we talk about municipal budgets, there's a lot of order and thought around the way these budgets are made. And in some cities, I'm sure there are. But in the city of Oakland, it's basically do whatever you can to figure out how to uh, satisfy the obligation that is our police spending and get that money from wherever you can possibly find it. 
One good example of this is the people of Oakland passed Measure Q um, one or two years ago. And Measure Q was a tax that was supposed to bring, I believe it was $23 million to uh, our unhoused communities for support, for reentry services, for cleaning in our parks, and for uh, basically uh, the people of Oakland voted to support the unhoused population and to take a tax to do so, right? We found out six months later that Libby Schaff, Mayor Schaff, uh, had tried to take a million of those dollars to pay for three police officers that she called the homeless outreach unit, right? That is not what the people paid for, right? The people paid for services and support. So why is, why, why is the administration trying to, you know, in some obscure line item in a budget that might have never been found, hide this million dollars? And for each one of those that we have caught and identified, how many of those are we missing? Right? How many piles of money are tucked into the police budget in places we just haven't identified yet? It's a real problem, uh, and not just one for Oakland. This is a problem for municipalities across the country. You know, when you think about all of these issues that affect our community, and you want to answer that question of you know, what keeps us safe, uh, we, we all have a difference in opinion of what you know, the answer to that, right? But I'd love to hear from both of you as leaders who've been speaking and advocating for community members in the Oakland Bay Area uh, and black and brown communities, people of color communities, poor people, you know, what that actually means, like when we talk about safety. And Kat, I heard earlier you had mentioned, you know, the people can take care of the people. It, let's help you know, people tuning in today imagine that in their minds, what that looks like. Well, I, I, I'm going to start off um, with, with some that people might consider a little bit abrasive. Um, the facts don't give a bleep about your opinion. Um, and, and, and that's really important, right? Because when we when we present the data and the research and the models that are working in other places in, of, of the country and the world, th those are facts. The, 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 it is a fact um, that quality education interrupts right, a, a pipeline to prison. It is a fact that dealing with people's mental health issues and their wounding and their trauma is an interrupter to violence. It is a fact that when we employ people and we provide them with adequate housing, that they do not have to live in the underground economy and thus crime levels go down because they're um, functioning contributing members of the above general crimes. Those are facts, right? Those aren't my opinions. Those aren't the opinions of APTP. So it is a fact that when we invest in the people, when we invest in housing, um, economic opportunity, education, trauma supports, mental health supports, holistic family services, when we do those things, we build safer communities. Those are facts. What is also a fact is that the United States incarcerates more people than any other developed country on the planet and more than several countries combined, and yet we still have this problem with crime. So it is a fact that if we could police and incarcerate our way to safety, we would have done that by now. It is a fact that indeed that is not how we're going to get there, right? And so my hope is that we can start to live in a world of facts, right, and get out of this place of, of subjective opinion. And um, that subjective opinion, let's be clear, is being fostered and, and exacerbated and fear-mongered, right, by the state, by elected officials who want to straddle both sides of the fence, including the mayor of Oakland, Libby Schaaf, um, 
right, by Oakland uh, uh, police associations and police associations across the country, right? Because they're clear, like we're clear, that the only visual, the only demonstration, the only option that we provided people um, to be able to see or even engage in uh, for a pathway towards public safety has been law enforcement, right? And, and, and white supremacy creates violent conditions. And so we do have, um, you know, things happening in our communities and, and in, in our nation that, that are concerning. But, but it's, a ga- it's, 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 it's a gaslight, right? Be- because the state is actually creating the conditions that then foster them being able to say that the only pathway to public safety is through the state, right? And so our work is about having a different conversation using facts um, and data and metrics um, about how we build a different world. Right. I want to be as safe as the next person. I live in the hood, right? And I live in the hood on purpose. I actually probably don't have to. Well, I might have to in the Bay, but um, I, I, you know, that 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 might be a fact too. Um, but but right. So so I live in a place where where there's gunfire. I live in a place where people. Just the other day, I woke up to my neighbor screaming. Right, I'm, I'm hearing obscenities. I'm like, what is happening? I don't. He's screaming because a woman was literally inside of my car, taking change out of my car. Right, that's not violence. However, those are the types of things that happen. Right, I, so I live in these neighborhoods. I am clear that we are not servicing her, and we are not servicing me. Right, by by continuing to to, to invest in law enforcement as the only way out. And so, I, I think we have, and we're we're in the middle of a, an incredibly powerful political moment. And and Oakland, as usual, is at the vanguard of this moment because we've been doing the organizing. You know, we've got the brilliance of folks like James and the defund committee that, that, that he leads um, that can actually take, right, the data and the research and the facts and put them into programming and, and, and resources and um, ideas that work for Oakland. Underscoring everything that Kat just said, uh, it is also, uh, it, it's also worth questioning where the other side is getting their facts to defend this system of policing. Right, police are allowed to say anything, you know, justifies more policing without really looking at the numbers uh, and get away with it. And when we all know specifically in this moment, when we're talking about homicide rates specifically, right? If you 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 can't find me a data scientist who takes themselves seriously, who thinks the way to solve a crisis that has a spike in homicide is with more policing, right? That's just not how policing works, right? You know, it is, it is specifically in the area of homicide. And so this moment has really underscored uh, that there's no uh, attempt for those supporting police to have an honest conversation about things, right? Again, we're ready to have an honest conversation, right? We have all the data. We've talked to folks for years about this. I think we really understand policing, right, as well as we can. And so we're ready to have an honest conversation about it. Okay, right? What can we do right now? Uh, and I am yet to see uh, the other side come to any conversation of that sort uh, uh, with any sort of genuineness or honesty. And so that's where we sit right now. And I would say something else, if I could just add one more thing to this, Michelle, before we move on. You know, one of the things that has been the saddest for me, the hardest for me is to see people that look like me pick up these police narratives, right? And 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 utilize the times that we're living in as, as a justification to push back against defund, right? Folks, I'm as far as I'm concerned, black, black folks, brown folks, queer folks, indigenous folks, like we are the ones that have had a front row seat 
right, to um, how much policing actually does not work to keep us any safer and actually how violent um, policing is and all of the continuous trauma and wounding that it creates in our communities. Um, and to see our folks be utilized by the state to push the state's narrative has been incredibly painful. Um, I mean, I, I, part of it I get, right? We, we are traumatized and wounded folks, and, and we're living in the neighborhoods where these things are happening. Um, and I take on some of the responsibility, right, or organizationally we do, because if, if we haven't done the, the job of creating alternative models, of creating another vision for people to see um, that there are options, there are alternatives, right, that's on us. Um, which also is is the other big work at this moment, right? It's not just about defund, it's also about building up, implementing, calling the data uh, and publicizing these alternative pathways to public safety. I wanted to ask you both a a very, I guess, personal and a candid question centered around the violence that we're seeing um, impacting the AAPI community. And Kat, you know, saw you spoke passionately at a rally uh, against anti-Asian hate and violence, and, and among other uh, incredible Black leaders who were there. Um, there's this very strong narrative and effort, you know, that runs parallel to, uh, I guess, I guess it affects people who are living in fear. So say someone like myself, who now is afraid of stepping outside of my house because of the rise of, uh, or, you know, these reported incidents of anti-Asian racism and violence, in which then, there, you know, it's like, we need more police, we need more police action, we need more policies, we need more laws on the books um, to address, you know, this situation. I'd like to hear from both of you in your thoughts about it, and, and some facts, right, that there are, there are alternative um, approaches to this, and, and ones that are much more safe for community. This, I mean, this is, you know, I've been asked this question a lot um, as, as the, the rise in violence against um, our, our Asian relatives ha- has been happening. And um, it, it's, it's a fine line, right? Like, like I can't tell, you know, I'm a survivor of sexual assault. Um, I, coming up out of that, right? Like, I, forget your politics, right? You don't get to tell me how. I go about finding safety or feeling safe. And so I just, I want to preface anything that I say, you know, post this with with that, right? Um, I've never been the victim of, I've been the victim of of race, hate speech, right? I've never had anybody physically put their hands on me um, because of my skin color. Um, So so I haven't lived through that moment in the same way that as abolitionists, we don't tell the families that we work with who are, you know, who lose loved ones to state violence, that they don't get to demand that killer cops get jailed, right? You get to seek justice and safety and security in the way that feels right for you. On the political side, that's the personal side, right? On uh, and, and I guess on the other thing on the personal side is also is that, right, and I am here and our organization is here as an ally. Right to 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 stand in solidarity, to push back, to stand guard, to send our healing justice um, networks to to aid whatever way um, that that we could be the best accomplices. Right, we we look to our Asian relatives to give us direction there. That said, on the side, that doesn't change anything that I've said about policing. Um, and, and I, I mean, I guess I'll, I say the same thing. Oakland police have fifty percent of the budget when these attacks in Oakland Chinatown happen. Right. Um, and and what, what Libby did following that, right, bl- blaming, again, defund, which hadn't happened yet, except for the $10 million she took out of the police budget um, for, for these attacks was, was disingenuous, 
at best. I'll let James talk about what it was at worst. Um, what I think it, it creates an opportunity for is two things. A, to continue the very real, sometimes painful, um, but critical conversations about the relationship between our Asian and Black communities in Oakland, refusing to allow white supremacy um, to, to divide us. Uh, having a conversation, understanding that all violence is state violence because state creates the conditions under which violence is, is created. And then looking at things like community ambassador programs, which from my understanding is black, white, Asian, indigenous, y- you name it, folks that have stepped up and said, I'll put my body on the lines for my Asian relatives, right? Um, uh, to, uh, to, to, to keep people safe. Um, bringing more police into a community of, of people of color and where there's a lot of poverty it's not going to make anybody any safer. And I said the same thing about putting up cameras. I see a lot of calls for cameras, and I really want to encourage people to to, to do some reading on the surveillance of our communities and, and the long-term ramifications uh, of that and, and, and exploring, you know, root cause issues. And, and then I'll just end by saying I am, however, on team stricter consequences for hate crimes, teams making team making it easier to, to call it a hate crime, because same thing, right? When, when, when things happen to Black folks, same thing. It's it's almost impossible um, to to get it charged as a hate crime, which, by the way, um, police murdering unarmed people should be charged as well. I mean, it's yeah. an issue. Again, Kat said that this is an issue that we've been working on uh, intensely um, since the crises have unfolded. But I think the most important thing to say here is that this is an issue that we've been working on before the crisis blew up. Well, first of all, this is an issue that existed before the crisis blew up. All of the issues that have been magnified now, um, uh, AAPI hate, um, um, a requirement that we be very specific about instances when we're talking about attacks and what has happened and who was involved and what has transpired and whether or not it is a hate crime, right? These are conversations that we have within the community uh, and have been having, right? Uh, And again, these are problems and violence that has existed well before it has been publicized in this moment. And so one of the questions I have is what is driving uh, what is driving the media to not address these situations with care and specificity, right? You know, there are, there are a number of different types of attacks. Some of them are hate crimes, some of them are not. Some of them are mental health crises where people are attacking. You know, some of them are robberies, right? These are all very different things and they need to be discussed as the discrete issues they are if we're going to want to address them and, and find solutions. Right. There's no broad bus solution for, for these problems. And in fact, each of these problems requires a very specific solution. Right. And then and then the second, again, as Kat said, um, while def- while holding space, the, the journey for, for for me as a policy director is to try to explain that police aren't going to make this better. Right. As a good ally in this moment, we just, you know, staying on message and saying, hey, we hear you. And again, you define your own safety in this moment. Right? And we are allies, and as allies, let us tell you that the police aren't going to make this better. Right? Chinatown is a half mile from the Oakland Police Department, right? and you ask people how long it takes to get their calls for service responded to in Chinatown. Right? They'll tell you that they're not coming at any time to do anything meaningful. Right? In addition, you know, placing a couple law enforcement officers on the ground, again, is too expensive uh, to be feasible. Right? What are you going to do, put two officers on the ground for the entirety of Chinatown? and spend millions of dollars for that? Or do you want, you know, 10 community ambassadors, you know, placed throughout Chinatown supporting the community? And just another word on that, um, on the community ambassador program that runs in Chinatown, right? There's a lot of 
research that's been done on if you uh, if you invest on placing people in a community that's densely populated like Oakland's Chinatown, right, and have them develop relationships with everybody who moves through their space and, you know, consider themselves maybe a steward, you know, of a, of a two-block area, right, as they develop relationships, not only with the vendors, but with the unhoused people who might frequent that area, um, the school kids who go through, um, the business folks, they develop relationships that allow them to keep everybody in that community safer. Right. They also identify environmental factors in that neighborhood that decrease safety. So they may go to the city councilor and say, hey, this alley right here needs some lighting because three people have been mugged in that alley uh, in the last six months. Or they might say, hey, our vendors need a safer place to deposit their cash. They're walking seven blocks to the bank uh, and they're getting hit up on that walk. Right. And so a lot of these things aren't flashy. A lot of these things don't really get seen as impacting public safety. Right. But community ambassadors, if you establish them in an area like Chinatown, can make a profound impact, an impact that police couldn't hope to have. And that's just one of many examples we try to talk about when we talk about reimagining public safety. Thank you so much for that. I'm going to take a quick moment to send um, thoughts, prayers, uh, my broken heart to the family of Mario Gonzalez. And I bring up the um, subject of Mario Gonzalez, for those who don't know, uh, who just recently passed in police custody, um, not too long, I guess a week ago, in which there was a phone call that was made, allegedly, uh, you know, stating that Mario was inebriated or uh, may have stolen something. Anyway, that call led to his death. And there's a video out there, it's uh, reported on KTVU and local news, so if you want to look it up for yourself, you can. Um, but I bring this particular uh, situation up because I, it made me think about the new hotline that a um, anti-police terror project had had just launched, the Mental Health First hotline. And if community members, if neighbors were able to access a hotline like that, could the out, would the outcome be different? And so I'd like for you both to discuss, you know, the purpose of this hotline and exactly what we're talking about when we say community members can, you know, be the uh, the answer to some of these calls. So I, I'm I'm happy to talk about that, but but I, I have to back us up because I it took me so long to even be able to get to the video because it, it the the tape that was released starts with the um, I guess we'll call them Kevin calls because it wasn't actually white women it was it was white men that called the police on Mario and I want to just walk through this first call so he he calls the police. And he says at first that this man is in his yard, that he's in his yard on his property and he's acting weird, right? He's, and then as the call progresses, um, we learn, well, actually he's not in his yard because actually there's a fence. But he, unfortunately for him, I guess, can see Mario over the fence. And this is a problem. This is a problem. And then we get a little further into the call, and, and he says, well, he's not actually doing anything wrong, but my wife is scared. His wife was scared of seeing a brown man breathing in a public park on the other side of her fence. And I want people to sit with that, because that is the level of power and privilege that got Mario Gonzalez murdered. He didn't pass. He was murdered. They dogpiled him, and they murdered him for drinking a beer in public on a sunny day in a park in Clanamita. 
right? And and what I what came back to me was the white women who say that the black man hit on them when he didn't, but she and she's mad about it, right? Or the instant regret that she had because she engaged with the black man and so she had to say you know say something else and the black man ends up lynched. Um, the white women who fried the chicken, right, um, for the lynchings that took place and took their children, right, to. So, so we need to have a conversation. We need to be continuing this conversation about white women and the role that they play in black death, right? And, and black men and white men as they defend their white women's fragility or protect their white women's fragility and how many black and brown bodies that that's resulted in. They And I want to make it also really clear that the, the, those two men are just as responsible for the murder of Mario Gonzalez for the fact that he is not breathing as the Alameda Police Department is. So I want to start there. Um, and, and then, yes, and then we see, um, unfortunately, yet one more time, why sending a badge and a gun to every single situation known to man is is an absolutely bad um, and too oftentimes deadly idea, right? Mario Gonzalez was a father of a four-year-old child. Mario Gonzalez was a brother, and in fact, he was the primary taker of his younger brother, who's 22 years old, who has autism, who now won't eat, sleep, go to the bathroom, or move because that level of stability has been ripped from, been ripped from his life. Mario brother took care. You know, was 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 a son. He was a partner. He was he was a contributor to our community, and now he's gone. MH First was created because upwards of 50% of all people that are murdered by law enforcement um, are murdered while they're in the middle of a mental health crisis. Um, so the question, you know, had to be asked, why do we continue to send a badge in the go and what we need to be sending is compassion and care? And MH First isn't like, uh, so MH First is, is both Oakland and Sacramento's, that were the first and the only uh, 911, non-911 response to mental health crisis but it's not just about being in acute mental health crisis, right? You don't have to have a Western medicine diagnosis like schizophrenia or bipolar or be having a manic episode. That's, yes, we, we are here and we'll respond to those things if you or your loved one or you see someone in the community that are in the middle um, of an episode like that. But, it, but it's also stuff like this. You see somebody in a park and they, they don't seem to be doing okay. You can call us instead of calling law enforcement. Um, that single black mom who, who, who's working four jobs and raising five kids by herself and she has a mental health moment, you can call MH first. You and your neighbors are having a dispute maybe about the milk that got spilled in the driveway, right? You can call MH first. Um, we, we want to be who you call first. And if we can't figure out, we'll figure it out. We'll figure out with you who can figure it out. But 99.9% of the time, we're going to be able to figure that out without calling 911 without bringing a badge and a gun or a taser, right? Without bringing the element, the threat of incarceration into the conversation. Um, this is literally about saving lives, preventing unnecessary deaths. Because like I said earlier, the data show the only way that we reduce and or eradicate state violence for our communities is to reduce and or eradicate the number of times our people engage with law enforcement. They were fought, they were born as the Calvary and slave catcher. Their job then was to hunt, catch, and kill black folks and brown folks. They're still doing their job. Nothing has changed. Um, they're always they're 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 always going to lead with violence. They're always going to lead with the intention to force compliance. They're always going to lead with the mentality that we are the subjects, the the suspect not human beings, but the suspect that needs to be contained and captured. And that's always going to be deadly for our communities. Thank you for backing us up and um, just taking a moment also just for myself, like, you know, having to talk about these things are hard, but we need to, uh, even if they make you emotional. Um, James, 
would you like to, to add? Yes, I appreciate uh, the context Kat put on this. Uh, and I think I'll just take this opportunity to talk about how the state frames things like this to uh, absolve themselves of responsibility, right? Everything that they say, every action that they take is an attempt to try to move themselves away from a position where they're the ones who did something that was wrong, right? So when we first heard the reports of, reports of Mario's murder, right, we heard that there was a medical emergency that occurred during a scuffle, that Mario was taken to the hospital where he passed away, right? That's what I heard. Right. And then I watched a video where a man put his knee in Mario's back, right? While another man put his weight on top of Mario as well. I heard those men identify that they knew that what they were doing could be dangerous, right? By saying things like, should we turn him on his side or is that too much weight on his, on his chest, right? They knew what they were doing was dangerous, but they didn't care about Mario as a human being. You got, I think the guy said, uh, I, I got a good thing going, like he had a good hold on Mario, and that was more important than whether or not Mario lived or died, right? And so Mario's dead because of that. And again, we were told a lie in an attempt to uh, uh, absolve responsibility and quell the rage that, that the people have in a moment like this. This is what they always do. It's like when Stefan Clark was shot and killed by police, and they said he had a gun in his hand, and then it was a black object, and then it turned out it was his phone, right? We hear this, you know, we hear this every time. Right. And then again, the narrative in the media, it's, this is called an officer-involved death or an officer-involved shooting. You know, they can't even say that the police killed Mario, right? The media won't even report the police killed Mario, which is a fact, right? Uh, because uh, of this faithfulness to and deference to police that is encouraged at a societal level. And so, you know, we say what we saw, and I saw Mario get murdered. Right. And I think that's why we, we, we that's a really important point for us to make here uh, and throughout our social media and our engagements, because, you know, there are very uh, we as a society, we've just turned away from uh, saying what we see. And instead, we adopt the, the narrative of our oppressors uh, and it leads to uh, a lot of difficulty for our people to really understand when they see a murder. Right. Uh, uh, as they did when Mario was murdered. Chairman Fred Hampton Jr., who's the son of Chairman Fred Hampton, who was the founder of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, um, who was assassinated by the Chicago Police Department and the United States government. Um, he he you know, runs the Black Panther Party Cubs, and he says, um, when you water down, uh, when, when you speak in euphemisms, you water down the people's will to resist. So it's not police brutality, it's police terror, it's not gentrification, it's land grab, and they're not prison, they're their American concentration camps. And it is, it's really important. Language matters. It's why they call our people a suspect, you know, when, when they kill them, because then, then it dehumanizes them, right? If you can't connect with their humanity, then you can't connect with the outrage that they're no longer with us. I'm going to have to take that part of the, the show and make it into a small clip and play it over and over and over and over. As with everything that you said here today, we have several questions from our audience. And so in just a little bit, I'm going to bring John Zipper back to ask you questions from the audience. My last question before we do that for both of you is, um, you know, when uh, Derek Chauvin was convicted, a lot of people called that justice. Uh, I would love for both of you to tell us was that justice and what is justice for the people, uh, for our black and brown communities, for black people, for a lot of the lives that have been lost due to uh, police murders? Kat? There is no justice. 
and certainly not none given by the judicial system in this country, right? Justice will be um, an, an end of policing as we know it. Justice will be complete and total abolition. Justice will be an end of white supremacy. Justice will be transforming how we talk about and implement public safety. That will be justice. What the what the Floyd family got, and I'm really glad they got it, was a little bit of a ball, right? A little, and most of our families don't get it, right? Most of our families never get any acknowledgement that what happened to their loved one, no matter what their loved one could have been sleeping in a car, right? Never get any acknowledgement that what happened to their loved one was wrong. They they got that, right? They got that. Um, but but this verdict, you know, it it, it runs the risk of having what we, we call the Obama effect, right? So when Obama got elected the first time, I was sitting in uh, what was then an all-black bar in Oakland that doesn't exist anymore, and the people started singing free at last. And I looked at my my partner at the time, and I was like, oh, we're in trouble, <laughs> right? <laughs> we're in trouble, because if, if they think the selection of this brother to that office, right, means that we are free at last, it means people are going to stop working and they're stop being outraged, and, and I, there's some concern there, right? Well, there, yeah, there's, there was some concern there. Um, we, we, we need to also understand that that verdict did not come from the judicial system. That verdict came from the people. That verdict came because tens of thousands protested for almost a year, right? That verdict came because they didn't want America to burn. That verdict came because that's what the state does when we're at the height of our organizing and movement making is that they give us concessions to shut us up and send us back home. That's what that verdict was. And if you have any doubt about that, if you have any doubt um, about, about that verdict does not represent any change, um, I, I tell you, uh, uh, Mario Gonzalez was murdered the day before the, the verdict came out. And as that verdict was being read, right, as the F- Floyd family was getting that, that bomb, the family of Micaiah Bryan, a 16-year-old baby, was watching her be shot four times in a mess by a police officer in Columbus, Ohio. Right. And of course, it was Andrew, Andrew Brown in North Carolina who was driving away. Police in this country kill an average of three people a day. That's an average. Right. There's no national database. so We don't have all of the numbers. Um, so, no, that wasn't justice. That wasn't justice. And black people could even finish their exhale before we were inhaling another episode of Black Death. I mean, Kat really pretty much said it. You know, there's not. Uh, there are so many families, even in just the last several weeks, you know, this weekend we were at what should have been the 23rd birthday party for Sean Monterosa, who was shot and killed while on his knees with his hands up by Vallejo Police Department through the windshield of their vehicle, right? A windshield that was then magically disappeared by law enforcement, right? Um, the weekend before that, we spent Sunday at the one-year anniversary of the murder of Stephen Taylor at the hands of San Leandro the San Leandro Police Department during a mental health crisis, right? He, the law enforcement officer entered the Walmart and within 40 seconds had shot and killed Stephen, right? The day before that, that Saturday should have been the 50th birthday party of Kayla Moore, who was killed during a mental health crisis in Berkeley, right? And so, you know, in the Bay Area, we we're just surrounded, you know, and Roger Allen was recently murdered in Daly City, right? And Sinead Ukobi was killed you know, in, in San Mateo County during a mental health crisis, and Angelo Quinto was killed during a mental health crisis in Antioch, right? And these aren't names from a long time ago. I bet, I don't think I've given you, you know, you know, a, a more than one name that's that's not within the last year and a half, right? And so um, it's hard as an advocate to see, like Kat said, that small piece of relief uh, given to the Floyd family 
uh, and then it be celebrated when we know so many families never even get that much, right? And then again, I'll leave with the words of, of uh, Mario's mother, uh, Mama Edith said at the press conference the other day, she said, there is no justice, right? Justice is Mario alive. Justice is having Mario with me, with the family, taking care of Ephraim, you know, and being my Mario, and I'll never have him again. And so there is no justice, right? And so I think nothing speaks louder than the words of the family. That's something we hear time and again, is these things are, are you know, are, are, can be celebrated for what they are, but they are by no means justice. Thank you so much, James. We're gonna flash that graphic once more, the MH first graphic, uh, just because it also has the numbers and the operating hours. If you wanna record this for yourself, you're in the Oakland area. And Kat said earlier, there's also um, a uh, MH first hotline for Sacramento. So you visit their website for that info. Unless Kat, you have it? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I can get it right right now, but I, I do wanna give the Oakland one for folks. Um, the number to call is 510-999. 9MH1, 510-999-9M, excuse me, 999-9MH1. Um, and then in Sacramento, the number to call is 916 Four zero six two, and you can call or text both of those numbers, right? And and if you call or text, and we're not open, we we, we will get back to you as soon as possible. Thank you so much. So we'll bring John uh, back with questions from the audience. Hello again. Um, we do have a number of questions from the audience. So let me just get right into them. Um, Someone asks, do you have anything to say specifically about the cities of Santa Clara and or San Jose? I know Santa Clara has started a commission of review on police practices. So any thoughts on developments in other Bay Area cities? Not specifically for those cities. Um, I do want to say that I feel like in the Bay Area, through the work and experience we have, there are a lot of incredibly talented people bringing uh, the message of defund and the principles we've explained today throughout the region. I also want to caution that, as Kat mentioned, uh, in moments like this, the state's uh, inclination is to give us a little so we will go home and be quiet, right? And so uh, not being able to speak specifically to what go what's going on in those counties, uh, I just want to lift up that there are real people doing work everywhere uh, and they should be supported. I, I mean, I would like to just talk just, just a little bit about the violence of the San Jose Police Department. Right, they're one of the most murderous police departments we have in our region. Um, they exacted some of the most violent retaliation uh, uh, against uh, protesters um, uh, during the, the summer rebellions while simultaneously trying to push through laws that would restrict our ability to assemble and assert um, our, our humanity. And the police association in San Jose teamed up with the police association in San Francisco and the police association in Los Angeles to launch a communications campaign, a full anti-defund communications campaign, and try to brainwash, gaslight um, community members into believing that, no, 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 actually what they need is not to be defunded. They need more money so they can continue to do the same thing that they've been doing, which somehow will ultimately get us to the goals um, of, of our movements to, to end state violence. Okay, along the, the connected, I guess, with that question, um, and, and Kat, you had mentioned 
things you're seeing in, in other cities across the United States and around, around the world. So more specifically, could you name some of these other cities and, and what they're doing well that, that uh, I guess, thinking locally, though, we, that uh, we could advocate for here, but specifically other cities in the country or around the world that, that are good examples? I mean, the two examples that I like, I like the most, and, and I get them confused. One's Finland and one is Iceland. And, and I know that that's a, but the, the amazing, I think it's, I think Iceland is, is the one where the ambulance that shows up, right, is, um, it doesn't look like an ambulance, right? It's, it's, it's got all the stuff it needs inside, but it's got like couches and the right music and the right lighting. And sometimes people just need a whirl around in that ambulance, right, to, to, to calm themselves down. Um, Finland and, and, and I, I, which I, 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 I think this is something we could, we could have here and, and need to have here. So it's not that they, their police don't have guns, but if their police want to utilize the guns, they have to call for a code. And then that code gets entered into, um, the, the, the lock would change all the time that, that releases the weapon for the, for the police officer to utilize, right? Time, space, um, de-escalation. Um, we see some amazing models of first response and rapid response happening in places like Chicago. Um, Black Lives Matter Chicago, Black Lives Matter New York um, are doing some amazing work. Um, Sister Song in the South, um, they're doing some amazing work that are rooted in defund and in employing um, restorative, transformative, excuse me, transformative justice practices instead of leading with law enforcement. Um, there's, of course, the work of Marion Kaba. Um, to, to follow, who really, you know, some of us they say this is the mother of a lot of this restorative justice work. Um, and, and the other thing that, that, that I, I would just say is that, that we, our communities, we've been taking care of ourselves for a really long time. There's never been a period of time in the United States, and I'll just talk about Black folks, right, where we haven't had to take care of each other because the master wasn't going to do it when the chattel slavery, and the master ain't going to do it now that is a violent police state, right? So we've been engaging in these models of taking care of ourselves for well over four, well, well over 400 years. I uh, sure. Yeah, just lifting up the, the there's incredible work coming out of Durham and Atlanta as well, two cities where uh, a black abolitionist organizers have been implementing models that are alternatives to policing. I believe it's the pre-arrest diversion program or the PAD unit in Atlanta is what it's called, run by Moki Macias. Uh, they do great work out there. Okay. Another audience comment. Um, to look at how policing happens one area to look at on a state level is our California post standards. That's the peace officer standards and, and training. Um, these are at the core of decision-making that occurs when hiring and training police personnel. So could one of you or both of you talk about uh, the post standards? Uh, I can, you, you want that cat? Um, go ahead. I, I'll, I'll make my follow-up comment. For sure. Uh, I just want to uh, post is run by cops. Uh, and is populated by law enforcement, right? And is uh, heavily influenced by law enforcement lobbies throughout the country, right? And so post, even, you know, even if we were to imagine that there was some way to train cops into doing their job in a way that didn't brutalize black and brown and indigenous people and, and people who are disabled, which I disagree with, even if we were, the body that's supposed to be doing that uh, does not have any interest uh, in making, uh, in being adverse to officers. Right, you know, asking police officers to police themselves, which is always what they'll lobby for, is is you know one of the most clear failures of this system of policing, uh, of which there are many. 
And I would just say, you know, while we have the system of, of policing that we have, yet yeah, training is important, right? Training is critical and training is matter. Training matters. And um, U.S. law enforcement training is the worst of any entity that we allow to carry guns that walk the planet. It, 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 I mean, when you talk to people that are in the military or have come from the military, they look at the training of law enforcement and they're baffled, right? Um, their, their heads literally explode. Um, the, the, we train cops to hunt people. We train cops to force compliance. We train cops to shoot center mass, right? That all said, I want to go back to the purpose of policing in this country. They are the frontline soldiers to maintain race-based capitalism and keep the people in line so that the system can continue as it goes on. So that being said, I'm going to quote something that Terha Ak, one of the co-founders of APTP, said when they taste uh, Marcellus Tony to death um, in, in, in Oakland. If you arm them with a, a bouquet of flowers, they will choke us to death with the bouquet of flowers. It is not about the weapon. It's about the person. It, excuse me, not about the weapon, it's about the institution. Agree, one, just, just, just one thing to add before we move on. It's worth a, a thorough examination of how our system of policing is not only responsible for horrors here, but that we farmed it out throughout the entire globe, right? As we attempted to institute uh, uh, our colonial and imperialist influence throughout uh, the world, what we farmed out most was our system of policing. And it wasn't farming out the system of policing to improve public safety across the world. It was farming out of our system of policing because it's one of the most effective in instituting a, uh, a regime of control and order, right? So colonial powers in other countries were are interested in learning those techniques and they came to us to do it, right? So we're responsible for a world of policing that uh, even by its own admission isn't, isn't uh, or its past admissions isn't to keep people safe. Right, it's to maintain control and order, or again, over workers, over indigenous people, and over black folks in America. Cat uh, Brooks, you said earlier uh, that uh, instead of police officers stopping crime in progress, local people have been doing this, uh, and resources need to be applied to helping them. And I think you, you you did mention some of this in, in terms of you know finding out what the, what the community needs and such. Are there any other things that you would like to see done to to not just provide people with what the resources they need, but also to then um, not get people so they're not calling police for things that can be handled by uh, neighbors and shopkeepers and such? Um, I, I don't know that I, I, I completely understand the question. Um, Maybe just, uh, you, you had said earlier when you were talking about, uh, you know, people, you said police officers are not the ones who stop, you know, violent crimes in, in progress process. Um, it's the people who are there on the street around them and, and who either do or do not intervene um, or ameliorate or whatever. Um, so the question is really just uh, what, what, what can be done to help people who are there do that? Is there any institutional changes that can be made to help them? Oh, I, I see what you're saying. So, I, I mean, it's, it's, I, so I, I think it's resourcing the community groups that exist, right? I mean, th this isn't work that, and, and I don't want to, so let me also be really clear. I don't want to oversimplify this, right? Um, there are primary predator, there's a primary predator, which is white supremacy. And then there are secondary predators in our community, right? There are some folks that are just, we don't necessarily need walking in, in our communities. This is, um, I, I've, I, 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 we, we rock with people that do this work. It is, it is dangerous work. It can be complicated work. Um, so I don't want to oversimplify either. 
what I do want to see done is investment in these models, investment in these alternative models, right? Um, I, I, and I want to see that happening happening right now. I, I, I want to see, and James, James knows, I, I've become incredibly passionate about talking about trauma and wounding and where trauma and wounding sits in the cycle of violence, right? You've got a child that has PTSD by the age of six or eight, if I'm being generous, um, dehumanized through his entire school experience. And then we're surprised that he's picking up a gun at 17. I want to put resources to address all of the points before he picks up that gun that we could have and should have intervened, but chose not to because it was a black body and we don't see their humanity, right? I want to have logical conversations. I want to have visionary conversations, not reactionary conversations to how we address violence. And, and in, in the, in the like right on short-term immediate, I want to take the money from cops to do all of these things that we don't need them doing, give those to community, and then let's let cops focus on violent crime. They signed up to play cops and robbers. That's why they um, decided that they wanted to be a law enforcement officer. They didn't want to be dealing with unhoused um, Black women, right, on the streets of San Francisco or Oakland. So let, 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 let's let let them go do that uh, in, in, in the short term while we figure out the larger conversation about public safety. But what I'm tired of is being on this rat wheel of Black grief and death um, that that keeps in you know ending um, a, with violent incarceration, and we spit people back um, onto our streets with no resources, supports for the cycle to continue again. James, another question: How do we hold these white folks who make calls to the police accountable for the deaths of people at the hands of cops? That's a great question. One thing I want to mention just before before turning to that on the last point is that. Um, I just want people to leave understanding that interrupting a violent, like having a system to interrupt acts of intimate violence is is not very realistic, right? If someone takes out their gun and is going to shoot someone else, having a system to have someone get there in time to intervene uh, is not a system that we have capacity to, to create with much effectiveness, is my opinion, right? So when Kat talks about all of the thousands of points that we could intervene before then, right, before the person is about to shoot their gun. That is, I think, the most effective way to influence this issue. And then on to the white people, um, man, that is that is work that I expect white people to be doing. Um, uh, this, this should be a public shame issue. Like, as Kat said, I hold those people responsible for murder, right? And so let's say that those were your, your friends that you have dinner with on, on Sunday nights. I can't rock with them anymore. You shouldn't be hanging out with them. You shouldn't associate with people who are willing to, so they don't have to see a brown person who makes them uncomfortable, risk having them killed, right? Everyone knows in the wake of what happened to George Floyd and countless others, what happens when you call the police. White people cannot, can no longer claim ignorance, or I didn't know what could have happened, or I was surprised. You know, when you call the cops, this is a possible consequence. So every time you're dialing that number, if you don't take that into consideration, then the responsibility is on your hands, you know, with the outcome. Very good. Kat, any comments on that? Any additions? Um, I mean, I mean, no, not really. I mean, to to echo what James said, right? The, that white folks need to be going to get their cousins, as we say, right? Because the the mental and emotional and physical labor should not be placed on black or brown bodies. Um, I also think that you know there, there's that we need to support um, and explore more some of these policies that local um, electeds um, in several cities across the country um, have brought. That like there's actual consequences 
Um, like if you make a race-based police call, right, that's that's a, a fine, that's a ticket, there's a consequence, there's a something, um, because I think the accountability piece is the only thing that's going to stop it, right? Right now they know they can weaponize their whiteness to call police, you know, and black bodies on the ground be damned. Very good. Well, thank you very much. And back to you, Michelle. Kat, James, I want to thank you so much again for taking time out of your busy schedules uh, to be with us and to walk us through a, um, I think an exercise, a, a necessary exercise for many of us, which is to um, reimagine what public safety is all about. Is there a, a website that people can go where they can find out more information or, again, like find information for the MH First hotline? Yeah, you can go to antipoliceterrorproject.org. Um, all of our programming uh, meetings, uh, calls to action are there. We're also actually very um, active and up-to-date on our social platforms. So Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Anti-Police Terror Project, APTP. And I know that uh, APTP hosts a bunch of community-wide events and efforts. Is there one coming up very soon? Yeah. Um, yes. I don't have the details yet. People can find them on our social media, but there's expected to be another rally in support of Mario Gonzalez this Saturday. And then we meet our general meetings are the third Wednesday of every month at 7 p.m. So if you want to get, get like, like this is when the work happens, right? You want to understand how uprisings like we saw last summer happen. It happened because in between those flashpoints, right, people are on the ground organizing. And this is a particularly important time to be organizing because not just in Oakland, but in cities across the, the state and, and the country is budget time, right? And where people are having conversations about redirecting dollars from law enforcement to the people, this is when we need Need you to engage. This is when we need you to advocate. This is when you 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 know you need to put some skin in the game to building this world that we want to see. Thank you so much, and thanks again for being with us here at the Commonwealth Club. Thanks for having us, Michelle. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime and every time. And thank you for all the work that you do for our communities and keeping us safe. Uh, thank you all for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club to hear this very important conversation. I'm going to leave it up to John to to formally end the program for us. Well, I'll formally thank Kat Brooks and James Birch again for their time. Um, and thanks to all of you for watching or listening to this program. You'll find us on our podcast and, of course, our YouTube channel. Please share that with your, your contacts. You can find more Commonwealth Club programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Thank you again. Stay safe. We'll see you in the future.